Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. So God, I just thank you for what you've already done. Thank you, Lord, just even the testimonies that have gone forth today, the worship that's gone forth, the word that's already gone forth today. Lord, we invite you, Holy Spirit, come and have your way in our midst. We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to look like you today. So, God, would you come and mold us and shape us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in us today. So I'm going to be jumping in today. I'm going to be going through the book of Titus. This is my third, I said third, third message on Titus and this, we've, I've been going through chapter by chapter. If you haven't listened to it, you can go back and look on YouTube or on our podcast. But today we're going to go specifically through chapter 3. And I'm going to give you a few highlights from the last time I spoke so you're caught up to date. So the book of Titus, it was written by Paul when he was in prison, second time he was in prison. And it was written to Titus who was on the island of Crete. So Paul commissions him to go and do a work on the island of Crete, um, which is in Greece, the biggest island in Greece. Titus is Paul's spiritual son, and so Paul has great affection, great trust for Titus, and he sends him into a precarious situation because those at Crete, they were essentially like modern-day pirates, so they were mercenaries, and they basically would do um, whatever the highest bidder asked them to do, and there was a lot of infighting, there was a lot of deception happening on Crete, there was false teachers that were being spread in Crete, and so Paul sends his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, go, and here's what he gave him the order to do. He said, put things in order that is unfinished and find and appoint elders for the town. So those were the two things Paul is tasking Titus to do, and we read that in the first chapter. And then last week I talked about the, or last time I spoke, I talked about the second chapter. In the second chapter, I, just to hit a few points here, I talked about the importance of sound doctrine. So how the Cretans were being deceived by false teachers, Talked about how Paul had directed various Christian subgroups. He was, he was trying to set up the family of God. They, they never had a Christian family, right? Christianity is brand new on the scene. So he gave instruction to young men, to old men, to young women, to old women. Um, and I talked a little bit about modern-day slavery and how that applies to slavery of that day um, and some verses on slavery that you find in Titus. Finally, last time I spoke, I talked about the grace of God and how that grace does couple different things. It pardons us from our sins, right? It's why we get to celebrate today this new life because the sin of everybody who we baptize today has been pardoned by Jesus. So they can go and, and stand before the Father free of their sin, free of guilt. Sin also, grace also empowers us to overcome our sin. So grace gives us power to live a new life in God and to actually overcome sin's deceptions in this world. So yes, in the age to come, but in this world, we can walk empowered through the blood of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, um, through God's grace. So one way to put it um, in terms of the, the three chapters of Titus is this. Chapter 1 is talking about the instruction to the church. Chapter 2 is talking about the instruction for the home, for the family. And chapter 3 is talking about the instruction that goes forth from the church to those in the public square. This is very applicable for us. How do you take, like, how do you present yourself to the world? And so even at our church, our core values are prayer and presence, how, how we connect with God. And second, their family, how we connect with others. And third, spheres of influence. How do we take that faith and actually apply it in our workplace and wherever you've called 
wherever God has called you to go, which is outside of the church. So that's what we're going to cover today, um, chapter 3. Um, so many of you know we've been on a, we did a fast recently. We just ended it, and it was 40-plus days. And so I was sitting around at the dinner table. This would have been a few weeks ago in the middle of the fast. And I was, you know, it was like 7 o'clock at night, and my stomach was rolling. And I was like, I was so like, like getting annoyed, and I was like, man, I just wish I could eat a bunch of meat right now. Like, I just want a big, fat lamb to chew on. And, um, and my kids are there around the table with me, and my daughter, Fern, who's eight, she pipes up, and she's like, hey, Daddy, I learned something in Sunday school that uh, goes against what you just said. I said, oh, did you? All right, Bible scholar, you're going to school the pastor? Like, what'd you learn? Like, what is it? Tell me now. And she said, yeah, they told me in Sunday school that when you fast, you're not supposed to tell people. (laughs) I'm like, really? Interesting. Like, what else did they tell you in Sunday school? She said, oh, yeah, and you're not supposed to act, like, disheveled and, like, you're you're really, oh, like, I'm hurting. I was like, shoot, girl. So I immediately got defensive, and I was like, no, 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 no. Like, they, they don't know what they're talking about, like, no, like, you know, this is in the privacy of our home. I'm not, I'm not really doing that. Like, you, you misread the scriptures, hon. And wouldn't you know, I feel like the Holy Spirit really convicted me and was like, no, you're trying to clean up your, you really were doing that. And I was like, shoot. And so I had to humble myself and go back to my eight-year-old and be like, you know what? Like, I'm glad you know the, the word of God. I'm glad you know the scriptures because I could have just glossed right over that. I could have just, you know, said that and acted that way. But now that you've highlighted this reality to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent and I'm going to change my attitude about my fast. So kids are so pure, right? And they just, they worship here this morning. They just say whatever. And, and it, it's so helpful because they take the word of God really seriously. And if my child, my eight-year-old, will take the word of God seriously, shouldn't, shouldn't you, shouldn't I, shouldn't we take the word of God with, when we read it, actually, like, let it bear weight on our lives? So I hope today, I'm, I'm going to be reading through Titus 3, as I said, and, and I hope, some of you may have heard these scriptures, these verses, but will you let it bear weight on your life today? Will, will you let it, like, actually, will you be conformed to God's word so that you may be transformed and, and look like him by the Spirit? So Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle towards everyone. This is how the church in Crete is supposed to operate, towards authorities, towards outsiders, even towards themselves, but specifically towards authorities Paul says this, they are to be subject to the rulers and authorities. You know, I don't like this verse in the Bible. Like, I really don't like it, especially when I have rulers and authorities that do stuff I don't like. And and so when when, when things happen, and and honestly, let's, let's, let's put any authority figure in that camp, all right? When your boss or somebody has authority over you, does something you don't like, wouldn't you rather not want to read this verse right after that? Subject to rulers. Did you see what he did? Did you see that law they passed? But this is the word of God. We have to let the word speak to us. We have to let it inform us at how to operate, how to live. Because the culture around us 
does not say this. The culture around us wants us to war with the world's tools, wants us to rebel against our boss, rebel against governments, rebel against those we don't like, put them in their place, slander them, come against them. And God says, no, be subject to them. Well, okay, well, well why, Lord? Why, why is that? There's some evil people out there running some evil shows. Why do I got to go to the show and, and listen and be a part of it? Romans 13 gives a little more context to this. And it says this, Paul reminds believers that all power ultimately comes from God. And consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities that are in place is actually rebelling against what God has instituted. So it gives us a little more color, but even that in itself is quite frustrating, to be honest. When you look at the world and the rulers in the world and the things they do, you say, how is this God's plan? I don't, I don't understand. If you go to 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, it says this. I urge then, first of all, that prayers and petitions, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. We're a house of prayer. We love this verse. We pray this. We, we, we pray into this verse all the time. But then it gets specific. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Well, okay. So this is starting to get a little bit. A little clearer picture here. So I'm called to pray for all people, specifically for kings and authority figures, because if they operate in their God-given role well, there will be peace. There will be, there will be safety. There, there will be order in the earth. And I would propose to you, in order that, the gospel may go forth. In order that this message that Paul's carrying, that Titus is carrying, will be carried out. That's why he's telling them to be peaceable before these authority figures is so that the gospel doesn't get lost and so that though their neighbors see them and recognize that they carry something that they want to hear and that Jesus begins to transform hearts through their ministry. That's why the whole strategy exists. So it's so important that we are submissive to our authorities even when we don't want to be, even when we don't like it. So the the Cretans, like, they've got a little bit more context here, which I'll include. So they're actually known for their military uprisings in Crete. And so uh, during the Hellenistic period, there were these, you know, Cretans that were there, and they were mercenaries, and basically they were willing to rebel against anybody to, you know, to make money and to get whatever they want to get. And so you have this state of perpetual warfare happening in Crete. And there's this guy, um, Polybius, I want to quote him real quick. He's a Greek historian from that time, and he says this regarding the Cretans. He says, They are involved in constant broils, both public and private, and in murders and civil wars. So Paul is writing to a people that their culture is to rebel and to war and to push back. And he's saying, no, you're Christians now. You're Christ's followers. Do what Christ did. Christ laid down his life. Christ did not come and overthrow the governments at hand. He came and established his kingdom in a whole different model. So do likewise. So he's challenging their cultural norms. Now, the crazy thing is, Paul himself was in prison. The Roman Empire put him in prison. So he's telling them this while he's currently in chains for an unjust charge. I mean, this guy can, he's got some authority. He's got some legs to stand on. And in fact, he would die because of the Roman Emperor Nero. He'd be himself murdered and killed. 
And he's saying, be subject to rulers. So Paul, he can, he's got some, um, some authority on this matter because he lived it. So how do we do that? How do you do that when you've got leaders that, how did Daniel do it? How, how, how did Joseph do it? They had these evil, wicked leaders. We've got, we've got bad leaders nowadays all over, for sure. But we don't have any Nebuchadnezzars that I know of. Like, it, it's not that bad. Although, I don't know. Maybe I take that back. But <laughs> even so, pray for our leaders. So the, I think the way we do that is we let the word of God shape us. We have to because our initial inclination, I know mine, mine's not to be submissive. Mine's to push back and rebel. But I want to trust the word of God. I want to believe what God says. I think it's super challenging in the hyper-political environment that we are in. How many of you know the environment is so hyper-political around these parts, every part, all over? And we want to make sure that we're being true to the word instead of being true to our party. We want to make sure we're being true to the word of God and what he's saying instead of just a few leaders that we like or a platform that we enjoy. I may have a platform I prefer, but my allegiance is to Jesus. And so when, when our allegiance gets placed in any other political sort of um, ideology, we're already off base. Like we've all, we're missing the point. And Paul is saying the gospel needs to be the centerpiece. Jesus is the centerpiece, and he's unpacked through the gospel. We have to keep that at the center. So while it feels weak sometimes to have, to be peaceful, it feels weak, honestly, to not push back and rebel. Jesus operated that way. And let me tell you, Jesus was not weak. And in fact, Paul operated in this way. And you want to know the fruit of this strategy? The, the Roman Empire was completely undone by the gospel, which transformed the hearts of the people and changed the very nature and shape of Europe using this strategy. So if you think this is weak, this is in the word of God. Secondly, look at the historical power of this strategy. They flipped the Roman Empire upside down because they shared the gospel. They, they were submissive, but they shared the gospel of peace, and their allegiance was to Christ first and foremost. So a few differences between that world and our world. All right, in that world, right, the Roman Empire, they've got their boot on everybody's neck. They, what they say goes. In our world, we live in a democratic republic. And so we have to be aware as well of the world that we live in and the government that we live in. In our government, I can vote. I have a say. In our government, I could run. I could be a politician. I, I can actually bring influence in the governmental sphere. That was not possible in Paul's day. So while it's true we need to be submissive to authorities, it's also true that we can't hide behind this verse and think, well, the church, separation church and state, like we, we shouldn't be involved in any politics. Let's let the politicians figure it out. I'm not saying that at all. We can't hide behind these verses and think that we don't have a role to play. We don't have a responsibility in our city, in our nation, in our state to bring change, to bring our faith into these arenas and not be afraid, even though it's going to cost us. Because it will cost us. And some of you, I know your story, it has cost you to stand for Jesus on some of these political issues. So we can't be afraid from that standpoint. I want to bring up a quote by our current mayor, Mayor Adams. And he just gave this quote recently at our interfaith breakfast. And I think it's, it's pertinent to this conversation. 
He said this, don't tell me about no separation of church and state. State is the body, church is the heart. You take the heart out of the body, the body dies. He continued, I can't separate my belief because I'm an elected official. When I walk, I walk with God. When I talk, I talk with God. When I put policies in place, I put them in with a godlike approach to them. Drop the mic, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> that is a good word, and I'm sure that cost him a lot to say it. Whether you agree with the mayor or not on his policies, you can agree, I can agree with this statement itself. And I can agree that we as believers cannot hide our faith from the state. We can't, maybe separation of church and state is a real thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, but how many know, by the way, that, that that exists, that separation, really so the state doesn't go into the church, not so much for the church into the state. Now, it's both ways, but the primary reason it was instituted is so the state would get out of the church. But our faith can't get out of the believer. <laughs> so put us in any industry, put us in politics. We're not going to become some secular robot. We're going to let our faith inform us, and we should. And we shouldn't be afraid if that offends other people. But we should do it, as Paul said, as the Lord has directed us, by submitting to authority, by being honoring, but knowing our allegiance is to Jesus first. So I think what this looks like is we're not combative against the state, but when the state says things or does things that are combative against the gospel, boy, we're going to push back. We're not, that, I'm not okay. I'm not okay when the state says, oh, like, we're going to subvert parents' rights, and instead we're going to let children be mutilated. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay when the state won't protect the right of the unborn. I'm not okay with that. And you and I, we should have a say in that because that is the church. That is our responsibility, and they're impeding on our territory. And so it's important that we also don't, don't use this verse to pipe down on the issues that really do matter. Because if we want to see society changed and shifted, it comes to the declaration of the gospel. But we shouldn't belittle the fact of what God can do through politics, through any of your industries that you live and work in. I hope you don't live in your industry, by the way. I hope you just work there. All right, Titus 3, starting at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Wow, Paul, that's really intense. He says, yeah, your old life was intense. It was terrible. <laughs> it was bad. Sin was knocking at your door, and you gave in to it. And you were subjected to it, and you let it rule you. And you have to remember where you came from if you want to go to the places God's called you to go. We can't forget that sin used to be our master. And if you're in Christ, it's not. But don't forget where you came from. Because if you forget where you came from, how are you going to relate and connect with the world around you? How are you going to have compassion and grace for the person standing right in front of you that deal with issues? And you're like, oh, they deal with some. Oh, my gosh, did you hear what they deal with? Do you remember what you dealt with? Come with that same attitude of mercy and engage with their heart. Lead them into truth, but don't judge them, and you won't if you remember where you came from. It's so important we know where we came from if we want to go and reach others with this gospel message. Colossians 3.12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, 
Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, humility, with gentleness, with patience. When we look back, it should be a humbling thing, but it also should be a hopeful thing because now we know where we've came, come out of. We know what God's taken us through. So when we look back, it gives us hope for those that were around who are still lost, who are still dealing with some of the things we used to deal with. But we know if he gave me new life, he gave these guys new life. Today we baptized. My gosh, he could give you new life. What could he do in, in somebody's life who still doesn't know the Lord? And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I want to encourage you to come up after service. We're going to have a time specifically of prayer because I believe there's an invitation today for the new life that these men dived into today. It's, it's not just for them. It's not just for me. It's not just for a few church folks. It's for everybody who would follow Jesus. All right, let's turn to Romans 6 real quick. Romans 6, verse 20 through 21. And it says this, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you were now ashamed of? Those things result in death. See, sin is a terrible, terrible thing that corrupts the human heart to the deepest level. And the result of sin, the wages of sin, is death. We are on death row if Christ does not come and manifest his love in the earth and pour out his life and break his body and shed his blood. We're on death row. We're not going to be connected with God. We're not going to live beyond this life. And so we have to remember where we've come from. And I think in the, as we present the gospel, sometimes we get so caught on things that are good, right? The love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. But before we get there, we have to remind people of the sin that has plagued and destroys us, that, that gives us a need for God, that gives us a need for the blood of Jesus. If we don't know that, then we're just like, oh, the love of God, that's fantastic, that's nice, but we don't know how desperate we are for it. We don't know how empty and broken we really are. And if anybody's honest with themselves, saved or unsaved in this room, you know there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of corruption in your heart. You would know it. And if you don't know it, ask your spouse. They will tell you. Say, yeah, sin's real. I saw it. I saw it in my spouse yesterday. It's not just mythological thing. All right. Titus, we're going to keep going. Titus 3, starting at verse 4. This is my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This is the gospel right here. The gospel boiled down in a few sentences. All right, Titus 3 verse 4 says this. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared. How many know that appearing? That's Jesus Christ. The appearing of his kindness and his love on the earth. When it appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So we were talking about that in chapter 2. You had these Judaizers that were in Crete that were sharing like, oh, you have to do these things. Be circumcised. Do these traditions in order for you to be saved. If you do this stuff, then God will save you. No, 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 no. They were following the traditions of men. That's not the commands of God. They were making up traditions from the commands of God and layering it on the people and saying, this is what you have to do. But Paul's coming against that teaching. He's saying, no, this, this is brought to you. Salvation is brought to you by God's mercy, not your righteous deeds. You can't take credit for it. He died because of his mercy. And he died out of a love and kindness for you. That is his character. That's his posture. We got to get back to that, that simple reality. God died for you just out of the sheer kindness and love of his heart, out of his longing to be with you. 
That's why Jesus died for you. That's why we celebrated Easter last week, because of that reality, the kindness and love of God. That, love, that word for love in the Greek is called philanthropa, and it means a love for humanity. It means like philanthropy. Jesus is the great philanthropist. Don't give me these worldly individuals. God is the philanthropist. He's the lover of humanity, and he's the one that every single person must turn to to be saved. I want to encourage you today. There are situations in our lives that help us to recognize the mercy of God. There are moments, and sometimes they're with the most unsuspecting people, where you, you, you can have a physical encounter with a person, and it reminds you of a spiritual reality of God's love and affection. Today, we're doing a physical act of baptism as a reminder of the spiritual transformation that had taken place already in these men. My wife has been a conduit for the mercy and grace of God. So I could say it, I could read the text, but in my relationship with her, I've experienced something that connects me with the love and grace of the Father. So I remember we were dating, this was, this was summer of 2009, going back. It was a hot night. We were in Hagerstown, Maryland, in a park, because that was the center ground where we, first, we, we had to come and drive there and meet. And I remember this was a night I was going to have to lay all my junk on the table and just say, hey, this is all the stuff that I've done in my life that's gonna, that I'm giving to you, and you can decide how you want to react to this. How many know that's scary? Because I did some bad stuff. And so like, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to put it all on the table, Lord, and hope she responds because I want to marry this woman, so let's see how this goes. By the way, don't do that unless you're like <laughs> further along. First date, like... Well, my pastor just laid all this stuff out. Go to the Thrive Ministry. Um, talk more about singleness. But so I laid it out. You know, I put it all out there. And let me tell you, I've never felt the grace and mercy of God more. With everything I said, she took it. She heard it. I forgive you. She took it. She heard it. I forgive you. Line by line. Item by item. And so I walked out of there saying, I now know in a deeper measure the grace and love of God. Because I've had a physical person in this physical realm actually do the stuff that Jesus did for me. But I had to be vulnerable. to even. Some of you need to be vulnerable with God. You're thinking like he's against you or he's, but when you come to him, you're going to find that same scenario that I had with my wife. You're going to find that with him. He's there to offer grace and mercy. You just come and you confess and you repent. You say, Lord, this is what I did in my life. This is what I did yesterday. This is what I ate for breakfast. I'm, I'm putting it all out there. Like, and you'll receive that. You'll, 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 you'll encounter that kindness, that love, that mercy, that grace that no one else other than God himself can give. So just finishing this, um, this verse, uh, next verse is verse, I think it's five or six. He saved us through, here's what he saved us through, two things. The washing of rebirth, that's what we're seeing today, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. Keith was talking about God is generous through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there's two agents here that he's talking about, two agents of salvation that Paul mentions. Number one, the washing of rebirth. All right. So he's in this. It kind of makes you think about Nicodemus. He's connected here with Nicodemus. Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, John 3. And, and here's what he says. Um, Nicodemus is saying, how does one be born again 
Um, and Jesus is saying, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. They must be born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. And so Nicodemus is shocked. What do you mean? Born again? Do I have to go back in my mother's womb? Like, what is going on? And it, it's such a shocking reality that you have to be born again, but you're born again through the, through the water and the spirit. So that water, that washing in Jewish culture, like that, there was a lot of washing that went on. It went on if you had certain like skin diseases, like there were certain you know things that you would do. But you go and wash yourself. The priest had to go and wash himself before going into the presence of the Lord, before entering into the sanctuary. He had to be washed. Babies, infants, by the law, they needed to come and be washed. So there is this reality of wash connection with washing and the removal of sin, the removal of filth. And so even today, as we're being, people are being baptized, they are being washed by the blood of Jesus. They're being cleansed, and they are coming up totally dirt-free. And so we think about that word washing. It should, you should think, oh, gosh, like God's making me clean, purifying me from my sin. The washing of rebirth. Second is renewal of the Holy Spirit. We cannot downplay the importance of the Holy Spirit. He is one of the Trinity. First of all, this is God himself. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit is what marks the new believer. It's the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes people new. The Holy Spirit is what breathes life on people. God created things through his spirit. He breathed life into them. And so when you become saved, the Holy Spirit enters you, and it's like that refreshing outpouring of water that fills you up, cleanses you out, but empowers you and rests upon you. That is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians says this, our outer nature is fading away, but our inner nature is being renewed. This is the Christian reality. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you, renewing you, bubbling up out of you, helping you day by day to walk and overcome sin and to walk and believe truth and reject lies. The renewal of the Holy Spirit is critically important for salvation and for life, for that matter. I want to put up this slide here. This is uh, from Jonathan Edwards. Um, he was an amazing revivalist, um, first great awakening, prominent leader in the great awakening. He was the first president at Princeton Theological Seminary. And here's what he says about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The new nature pulls the soul towards God so that all it sees, hears, thinks, and does relates it to God. Having brought the person to himself, God pours his love out on the saint who is now enabled to grow closer and closer to God. For Edwards, the agent of conversion and divine outpouring, the key to the mystery of the election of God to man is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's massively important. I, um, I have a few bikes, both of which are broken right now, and I need to repair, so I'm not biking much these days. But my, one of my bikes last summer, it really broke down for me the first time. So I, I go and I get on the bike, and I don't know, maybe it's 14 speeds. And I go to get on, and you all ever had that situation where literally, like, it just won't jump to the next, to the next spoke or whatever, to the next, whatever this gear, to the next gear? So I'm, I'm going, I'm riding on, and I've got one gear. And I think it was, like, the highest gear. And so I am just, like... I'm doing fine when I'm going downhill. I'm doing fine on a, you know, just a little bit incline. But on the hills, like, I'm a wimp. Like, I cannot get even close. 
And the Lord began speaking to me as I was biking last summer and just saying, you know, you know, this, this one gear Christianity, that's kind of like life without acknowledging the Holy Spirit. Like without understanding that you have the renewal of the Spirit that came into you, that empowers you day by day. Without that, you're like a one gear Christian. And so when life changes, when things gets hard, when you have to go uphill, you can't traverse it because you got one gear. And maybe you just pray a bit and you read a little bit of the Bible and you're like, oh, God, like, get a, get, talk a little bit. But if you have the Holy Spirit, he can help you, like, traverse all those things. He can give you wisdom through the word and through other people. But we got to have the Holy Spirit if we're going to walk and grow and mature in God. And so it's so important, even for those of you that are newly saved, that developing that relationship with the Holy Spirit, learning, getting around people that know how to hear his voice, because you're going to need it for the long haul. And it actually puts the dependence off of you. It's not about how much, how much stuff you can do. It, it's about you leaning into his heart, knowing what he's saying, and trusting him. So we need the Holy Spirit for daily life, my goodness. Titus uh, 3, verse 7 says this. So having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Having been justified by his grace, we are now heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is good news. This is really good news. This, was, this would have been really good news for those in Crete. You had a bunch of different groups in Crete. You had the majority, um, or the not the majority, the the just a small portion were actually landowners. They actually had an inheritance to give and to receive. Most of the people in Crete fell in these other groups. Most of the people were had no political rights. So you have resident aliens. They live in special quarters of the city. So what inheritance do they have? You have women at that time who were non-citizens, had no political rights. You had serfs who didn't have a house in a state, of course, who were working for others. And you had slaves who didn't have anything. They didn't even have control of their own bodies. And so you have all these groups of people, and Paul takes them all, and he says, Titus, all these people, they all are slaves to sin. Every one of them is, in fact, enslaved. But when they give their life to the Lord, every single one of them now has an inheritance, an inheritance that's beyond this age, an inheritance that is the eternal life that they have in God. So what a revolutionary message. We're talking about revolution. The gospel is revolutionary that would have like struck a chord in them like oh my gosh I don't have anything but I have God and I have an inheritance in him and I'm going to actually get to reap and enjoy that one day some of you need to hear that some of you if you're going through hard times or you just you don't have a lot financially you don't have a lot relationally you don't have a lot you name it you are lacking you need a revelation of the inheritance that you have in God that's going to give you so much courage and so much strength. You know, Pastor Bill was talking last week, and he was talking about how, like, you want to know your destiny, you want to know your purpose? It's the cross. Like, that is the, the purpose and destiny that God has given you. And I think it's so important that we have that lens when we talk about our own purpose, our own destiny. Because if our lens is not the cross, then we will we'll make everything about this age. We'll make everything about what's present, what's around us, what we can see, what we can touch. But when we know our destiny is the cross, we know like Jesus, we're living for an age to come. He laid down his life knowing he was going to gain you and me and anyone that would follow him. And so he did it. So, so he was able to be obedient in the midst of trial. And so likewise, if you want to know your purpose and destiny, you have to anchor that in the hope of eternal life. 
And I know that feels like a broad sort of vague thing, but I would encourage you, pray into that. Say, God, I feel mixed. I feel discouraged. I'm, I'm not understanding my purpose and my calling. Would you give me insight in relation to this eternal hope that I have in you? Would you give me a vision beyond this age? to the age that you've called me to, to the age the Holy Spirit in you is crying out for you to connect with and to bring into this earth, into this earth. Like the Spirit of God in you, I'm getting very excited, because the Spirit of God in you is this deposit from another age. It's God himself saying, there's more. This is the first fruits of what I want to do. I want to redeem and restore the whole earth. And so all creation is crying, is, is looking to the sons and daughters of God for us to step into our sonship, for us to cry out, Abba, Father, we live beyond for something way bigger than this age. We live for the king, and his kingdom is not fully manifest here yet, but it will be. It will be. The heaven and the new heaven and new earth, they will come together. And so how much more do we need to understand that now? That's not just eschatological nonsense. That's biblical realities that keep you grounded and keep you running the race. And keep you not caught up in all the nonsense of politics, but saying, I live for a greater kingdom. And my focus, my destiny is going to be set on God's kingdom, not on earthly kingdoms. That was a good word, Colt. All right. <laughs> all right, Romans, Romans 8, Romans 8, 15. And this is what I'm talking about. I'm just going to read this to you and let it wash over you. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, we are, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-crucified, co-resurrected. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There is a glory that we get to share in, and we didn't work for it. But he did, and he invites us to the table. Worship team, could you guys come on up? Titus 3, starting at verse 8, says this. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It's like, what I'm teaching you, this is, this is good. But, but this, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable. They're useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Strong language. Now, notice he's not saying avoid controversy. If you're going to avoid controversy, you're not going to be able to preach the gospel. You're not going to be able to do anything. There's so much controversy in this world. It's just the reality of living for Christ. But he says avoid foolish controversy. Foolish controversy. We need to be wise and discerning as a church. We need to be wise and discerning about what we entertain in our thoughts. Because when you're entertaining stuff that is foolish, you, it leads you in all sorts of deception. It leads you to be divisive. It leads you to destroy families and churches and all the things God wants to build up. So we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in these foolish controversies. 
And I mean, they were they were arguing in Crete about genealogies, ancestry, saying, "Oh, like you know, look at look at my ancestry, look at my genealogy, look like they were comparing those things." Now we have our own things in this day and age, but what are the things that you're allowing to distract you? Like, really ask the Lord, what are the things? What are those foolish things that you're like? I know I shouldn't post that. I know I shouldn't. I shouldn't like entertain that that post. But I, I'm just gonna let it ruminate a bit. It needs to fall to the ground because the kingdom of God is to be your assignment, not these foolish controversies that don't pertain to eternal things. That's how you kind of know it's foolish. Does this really have a purpose in God beyond whatever this, whatever's happening in front of me? If it doesn't, you should probably throw it out. You should probably dump it out of your mind, back the truck up, dump that thought, and let it go. Paul's saying, Titus, we got bigger things. We got bigger things to go after here. Last verse, Titus 3, verse 12 to the end of the chapter says this. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You know, this closing, we can kind of just jump over it, but it's beautiful in that you hear all these different names. And like, we know a bit about Titus and Paul, but now he's, he's mentioning Apollos, who's all over the scriptures as well. And a few other names that we don't know anything about. But it brings us into this family of God that was being cultivated, that was being stewarded by Paul, by Titus, and many others. And you just see they are united because of their work together for the gospel. Some of us, we would put some of these distractions aside if we could just get that vision for what God wants to to bring. Just begin to minister together as a church. Just begin to reach out to those reach out to the lost and the saved and say, I don't have time for these controversies. I'm part of this loving family of God and we have to love each other so we can actually display to the world something they don't have. And so I just love that in the end, it's just kind of bringing together that family of God, hearing the different pieces. And I want to encourage you today, you have a role to play in the family of God. We're so, we're really big here on, this is not like a a pulpit ministry. Like we have some people that come up and, and pray and preach and do different things, but everybody here, you all have a role to play in bringing forth the kingdom of God, every single person. And some of you are gonna do things that some of us could not, po- you're gonna go places, you're gonna reach people that nobody could possibly touch. And so I just wanna encourage you, this message is for you. It's to empower and equip you. It's not just a nice thing that Paul and Titus did or some nice words that I'm saying. Like, no, like we're invited to this kingdom work. And we all get to play a role. Amen? Everybody stand for me, please. I think it's so important that, you know, he ends this letter. He said, greet all of those who love us in the faith. There is a love that is in this family, that is in the family of God in Crete and with Paul and all his associates. There's a love that that undergirds everything they do. And you and I, we, we have to walk in this love, but we're going to really reach and really go <laughs> and really be the family of God, really be a, a reflection of his love to people. 
I want to read this quote as I close. This is from Robbie Dawkins, and it says this about love. It says, nothing is stronger in disarming the kingdom of darkness than love. Love is a thing Satan can't stand. Love is the weapon of mass destruction. Satan is the one whispering in people's ear, God is repulsed by you. But God is saying this, I love you. I'm crazy about you. Come home to me. Come home to me. Come home to me. For some of you, this is your day to come home. It's your day to come home. Come into the family of God. Come into the Father's house. Come let the blood of Jesus cleanse you. Come let the Holy Spirit regenerate you. Come home. For some of us, it's a day to come into his love and kindness afresh. Say, God, I need to know your love and your kindness. I need to be marked by it. This is the reality of your nature and your character. And you live and dwell in me. God, would you change my normative? Would you, would you change the status quo of my life that your kindness and your love and your mercy will be what I feel, what I receive, and what I give? In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.